0: Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all.
1: Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges here with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises on the show today dive in as we explore the problems and solutions that lie within our oceans national geographics adrian Gehen and irish wildlife Trust's regina clayson explain why we need to take a closer look at what's going on under the waves wildlife cinematographer and bafta winner sophie darlington joins karen Dubsky from coastwatch to discuss the impacts of marine litter Minister Malcolm Noonan on why the government needs your input now to protect our marine life. And Maliki Tuhi of Riptide Movement is my guest this week for My Green Life, where we'll hear how the rock band is doing their bit to clean up the planet. It's time to head down to Earth. We'd also love to hear from you. What do you think we should do to protect our marine ecosystems and wildlife? You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now, with the ocean being home to up to 80% of all life on Earth, my first guests are on the front lines in protecting this very important ecosystem. Adrian Gahan is the UK and EU Policy Director for National Geographic's Pristine Seas, and Regina Clayson is a Marine Ecologist and Project Officer with Irish Wildlife Trust. Welcome, Adrian and Regina. Hiya. Hello. Hi. Thanks Ad- for having us. Great to have you on. Adrian, we know there are many problems and changes happening in the ocean due to human activity, but what do you think are the biggest concerns with respect to the ocean environment globally?
2: Well, um, a lot of public attention in recent years has been focused on the issue of plastic pollution, which is not insignificant, but actually it's by no means the biggest issue facing the global ocean. And perhaps perhaps many of your listeners may have seen a recent Netflix documentary called Sea Spiracy, And that does a pretty good job of focusing attention on the real issue facing the global ocean, which is overfishing. And that is the fact that for over a hundred years now, we've been using industrial technology to extract wildlife from the global ocean. And it's now got to the point where nine out of 10 of the big fish in the global ocean are gone and by big fish i mean the big the, the sharks the tuna the sailfish the marlin the groupers and um, the big apex predators and the large fish and where have they gone we've eaten them we've taken them out industrially and we've eaten them so this is a major major issue facing the world not just because you may like to eat fish but the ocean is extremely important for regulating the climate system, and that requires a healthy ocean, and also billions of people around the world rely on the ocean as their primary source of protein. It's not just a food choice that we might make when we go to the supermarket. For a lot of people, they need a healthy ocean to survive.
1: Yeah, I read that, uh, you know, we we deforest about 25 million acres of forest every year, but we're actually bottom trawling and destroying nearly 4 billion acres of seafloor. So is it really this bottom trawling that's causing so much of the problem?
2: Yeah, fishing methods, uh, uh, you know, a lot of them are highly indiscriminate. Um, It's it's worth considering that, uh, you know, fishing is effectively hunting. It's not farming. So you are using very crude technology to capture vast amounts of biomass you know vast amounts of fish from either the middle of the water column or the seabed and particularly when you start going down to the seabed to catch white fish like cod like haddock this kind of fish that a lot of irish people like to eat um the technology involved is pretty crude so you're using these trawling technology which is very heavy nets weighed down with bars and beams and they're being dragged across the seabed in order to catch the target species but of course in the process they're also ripping out a huge amount of other things so you know a good a good analogy would be if you were on land if you could imagine a beautiful forest that was filled with uh, you know deer and wild boar and rabbits and such and and hunters wanted to get them out to, to eat them well in the process that, you know, Could you imagine chopping down the whole forest in order to extract uh, the deer and the boar? And then soon your forest is gone, then the deer are gone, the boar are gone. Next thing you know, you've hunted out all the rabbits. And you get down to the point where there's very little left to catch in this desolate space other than perhaps rodents or something. So you've, you've got the situation in many parts of the world, the Irish Sea being a, an unfortunate example where you know the, the seabed has been so badly fished you know the fishermen have little left to catch now other than scallops and um nephrops which are like dublin bay prawns um and and uh you know the 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 remaining stocks of healthy fish are 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 unfortunately very low so um you know it's 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 uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a very uh, it's a less than it's a less than ideal situation, to say the least.
1: Regina, would you agree with Adrian that the problems we're seeing here in Ireland around our oceans are the same as those globally?
3: I would, yes. I mean, sea Spirit has really shown that overfishing is certainly a global problem. And particularly in Ireland, um, yeah, we do see the effect of bottom trawling quite severe. So Adrian has already mentioned that we've lost a lot of our larger fish. And actually um, the extent of that in Ireland is quite severe. I mean, the physical disturbance of the seabed um, occurs on around 13% of Ireland's maritime area. Just to put that in perspective, that's about the size, nearly the size of the island of Ireland again. So we are really physically disturbing the seabed to a really great extent. And that is having a severe impact on the entire ocean functioning. And if you throw in, climate change as well. I mean, the, What a lot of people don't know is the seabed stores a lot of carbon. And if you disturb that sediment, you're releasing that carbon. So we are disturbing not only really important ecosystems, but also really important uh, carbon sinks.
1: So you, you've both summarized the problems really well. What are the solutions to addressing this problem? Maybe we could start with Regina.
3: Yeah, I mean... Getting back what we've lost is a big challenge. And um, part of that solution are, for example, marine protected areas, um, which essentially are areas in the ocean that are set aside to restore and protect nature. And as I already said, the oceans ocean is our biggest carbon sink. So if we simply left some areas alone, didn't trawl them, um, you know, didn't take out a whole lot of fish biomass, just left The nature to to its own devices, um, we could already, um, yeah, that's already a big step in the right direction. But of course, fisheries management is also a very big factor in this.
1: Adrian, would you agree?
2: Uh, Yes, I would agree. So these are the two uh, best ways to prevent overfishing. One is to have better managed fisheries, which requires quite a lot of science, a lot of government intervention, and a lot of cooperation from the fishing industry. The other option is, is a lot simpler, which is to have these marine protected areas, which, which Regina mentioned. And these are simply parts of the ocean set aside where fishing cannot take place. The most effective types of MPAs, as they're called, are no-take MPAs, whereas other types allow certain types of fishing, like stationary pots and gill nets, but they would ban the most destructive types, which we mentioned, like the trawling and dredging. But I've got some very good news for you, which is that my colleagues at National Geographic have conducted a global study of ocean priorities, uh, of parts of the ocean that you would want to protect if you wanted to, um, you know, increase uh, the amount of fish in the ocean, if you wanted to protect biodiversity, and if you wanted to prevent carbon emissions. And actually, the results are very positive, and they're very positive for Ireland, because it's not the case that if you if you close an area to fishing then fishermen lose out in fact it's the opposite if you close an area to fishing then you get this wonderful bounce back in the in the fish life within the closed area within a very short period of time a few short years and then you have what's called a spillover effect where in effect this mpa acts like a fish bank where fish grow more mature they then spawn and have more, more more you know more babies and those and those fish grow bigger and then they spill over into the areas which are fished outside of the MPA and there's fantastic examples from around the world of where these areas have been closed and within a few short years there's one you know there's 3 400% return in in the biomass there's examples in Mexico there's examples in Indonesia in the Philippines in Turkey and then you've got fishermen outside of these closed areas making more money and catching more fish than they ever did and if those areas were not closed they would instead be fishing down the food chain and competing for an ever smaller resource so mpas are are, are a really good really good option that can benefit the environment and benefit fishermen now ireland unfortunately only has um to just over 2% of its territorial waters designated as MPAs. And of those, none of them are effectively managed or enforced. So it's not a great starting point. But good news is that Ireland has signed up to a high ambition coalition of countries, which is nearly 60 countries now around the world, including the European Union, that want to protect 30% of their seas by 2030. And that we hope is going to be included in a UN global nature deal that's been negotiated this year and we hope will meet in Kunming in China in November. And we hope that this 30% by 2030 of protection of the ocean and the land will, will, will be secured.
1: I like what you're saying that the solution to this is so simple. Like Unlike climate change, where we we have to implement all these new technologies to get us off fossil fuels, what you're saying is if we just leave the ocean alone or parts of the ocean alone, uh, it can actually rebound and and solve the problem. But I have to say, Adrian, I was really surprised recently the UK has a lot more marine protected areas than we do. uh, And yet recently Greenpeace was out there dropping giant boulders into these marine protected areas to try and stop fishermen from bottom, bottom trawling them. So are these MPAs actually working if fishermen can still go in there and bottom troll the areas?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, the the issue there, is, I don't want to get into a sort of uh, EU legal discussion, but basically from the coast, 200 miles off of the, of the coast are the, what's called the exclusive economic zone of that country. Within the EU, it's from uh, you know zero to 12 miles belongs to that country entirely and Ireland can decide what happens within those 12 miles from 12 to 200 miles or a median line where you meet the waters of another country which obviously now include the UK which is a third country outside of the common fisheries policy and um, when when you get to that 12 to 200 miles you need the agreement of all of the other countries in the EU in order to establish a marine protected area. So what Greenpeace was highlighting there in the UK was the fact that these MPAs, which are in offshore is what they call it, which is an area more than 12 miles offshore, that you in fact still had other countries, the English boats, UK boats included, but also Dutch, uh, uh, Belgian uh, trawlers, in in this mpa and that's because they couldn't all agree to 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 stop trawling on it and you had a classic tragedy of the commons where because everyone knew no one else would agree then they all kept doing it so ireland will face that problem on mpas if they're more than 12 miles off of shore now within 12 miles we can ban trawling unilaterally beyond 12 miles we will need the agreement and cooperation of of the eu that's not impossible to do but it's difficult to do and the eu has signed up to this 30 by 30 target as well so it's up to the irish government and the people of ireland to you know assert uh, it's 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 claim uh, over the 0 to 12 and to push hard at an eu level to try and get an agreement on properly protecting mpas between 12 and 200 miles, or 12 in the median line.
1: Finally, Regina, the Irish government has recently launched a consultation on this issue of marine protected areas. So what would Irish Wildlife Trust like to see the public do to support your efforts in this area?
3: Yes, um, there is a really important report out for public public consultation. And what we've done is we've kind of simplified it because it's a very long report, it's 300 pages long, a lot of information in it. Anybody that wants to read it, absolutely welcome to. It's an incredible piece of work. Um, but we have simplified it a little bit on our website. So we are calling on people to engage in this public consultation because MPAs are so important, but we have a lot of work ahead and we need the public to really support this report. It's it's great, it's brilliant, it has great recommendations for the government. So if you could go on our website at iwt.ie forward slash action and engage in this public consultation, it would really, really help.
1: Yeah, I was on there last night, and it, you've made it really simple for the public to have their say in these marine protected areas. IWT.ie is the website. Adrian Gahan and Regina Clayson, thank you so much for joining the conversation on Down to Earth. Up next, wildlife cinematographer and BAFTA winner Sophie Darlington, who's worked with Sir David Attenborough, recounts her experiences around the world making films alongside our own Karen Dubsky from Coast Water. Down
0: to Earth on News Talk with a Monday. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all.
1: You're listening to Down to Earth here on News Talk with me, Dr. Augustin Augustenborg. We're playing Riptide Movement's Oceans because in a little while we'll be talking to singer-songwriter Maliki Tuhi about his green life where we'll hear how the band is doing its bit to clean up the planet. Now, we've already highlighted several of the problems beneath the surface of our oceans, and my next guests have dedicated their lives to inspiring the public to act in order to solve the problem. Sophie Darlington is a, a BAFTA award-winning cinematographer who has worked on feature films for companies such as Netflix, National Geographic, and BBC, including several films narrated by Sir David Attenborough. She's so lucky. And Karen Dubsky is a marine ecologist working in Trinity College, Dublin, a notable environmental activist here in Ireland and co-founder founder of Coast Watch Europe. Welcome to the show, Sophie and Karen.
4: Hello, Carla. Thank you for having us.
1: Thanks so yes, much. Thanks a million, Karen. lovely to be here. Lovely to have both of you. Sophie, you've been all over the world for more than 25 years filming beautiful documentaries about our natural world, including the marine environment. So what changes have you seen in that time? Um, sadly, horrendous changes like all of us. I'm
0: sure Karen is the same, but um, definitely um, Uh, it's escalating is all I can say Um, places that you would imagine you would never see ever see any rubbish the Antarctic um, Alaskan coast Um, it's it's horrendous Um, so yeah um, heartbreaking I think is the term that most usually comes to mind
1: and the rubbish that you're seeing in these pristine environments where do you think it's coming from
0: Oh, us. I mean, you know, it's it's bottles, it's flip flops, it's plastic, it's um, it's uh, you know, it can be a combination of different things depending on where you are and what the currents are doing, but. Um, I think I think bottles actually are one of the worst, um, you know, plastic bottles seem to be one of the worst things that you see. And flip-flops, weirdly.
1: Everywhere you go, flip-flops. <laughs> wow. Coming from Ireland, flip-flops aren't really a thing here. Karen, maybe you've seen flip-flops on the beach in Ireland. Coastwatch oh, yeah. has been conducting marine litter surveys every year here for more than 20 years. And I know you helped design the Blue Flag Beaches Award Program here in Ireland for for clean beaches. Are you seeing the same experiences here that, that Sophie talks about all over the world?
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think there's there's the world footprint, like the flip-flop, which might come across from America if we're on the West Coast or from the UK or locally grown if we're in the Irish Sea, because each area has its, sort of its own fingerprint. And then we have a lot of locally generated waste as well. So... Um, you know, your, your hotspots might be in an estuary, which gets the double whammy. It gets the stuff coming down a river and it gets what is washed up in storms and then catches in an estuary. And in a way, you could think of it as the sea is trying to do as a survey. It's sort of giving this stuff back on a pan and saying, will you ever just lift it off
1: now? Would you say that COVID has has changed the marine litter that you're seeing over the last year? Yes, absolutely. We see the
4: new um, face masks and wet wipes have like wet wipes. We in our Cold Spot survey we uh, log a whole pile of different types of twenty seven different types of litter categories. And wet wipes have really shot up and wow. um, the other, because of this extra cleanliness. Remember when COVID started and uh, every news bulletin had a wash your hands, wipe, wipe everything down. So that is the response to it. And then they, um, the masks, yeah, whether people are losing them or whether they're discarding them, but definitely particularly around car parks and now also washed up in the tideline. But the wet wipe one, I would be far more concerned because a lot of that comes through toilets and causes stormwater overflows.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised you're saying wet wipes because I thought that the media had done a pretty good job over the last couple of years to inform the public that wet wipes aren't biodegradable and that we shouldn't flush them down toilets and that they have plastic in them. So what more should we be doing to educate the public and and try and stop this from happening?
4: Um, I think the Irish government approach on this one is a bit like the plastic bag tax, a, a really a leader. Ireland is going beyond what the EU says, which is information for the public. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation about because industry has now put flushable on a lot of their new uh, wet wipes, which aren't, strictly speaking, plastic but behave exactly like plastic. So the Irish government's proposal, proposal, assuming that it doesn't get shot down in the EU six months period where it has to be agreed, is to ban wet wipes, which are for non-medical use. And that is because there was a massive campaign by media, like you said, Cara, to please don't flush them. They're still being flushed and added to that industry has now put in the, oh, I'm flashable, please use me.
1: Crazy. Sophie, you've been educating the public about nature through films like Our Planet on Netflix and A Perfect Planet on BBC, but let's have a quick listen to a trailer from The Perfect Planet now. From volcanoes to weather systems, to ocean currents, to the heat of the sun, these forces allowed life on Earth to flourish. I think the cinematography that goes with that I wish people could see it it's just incredible work that you've done and I think you've really inspired the public to care more about nature but how have you seen filmmaking change over the years in terms of how it educates the public on environment and conservation
0: Well it's 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 really interesting I think there's a there's a huge um upswell of everybody now um for many years we've been trying to sell um, the idea of conservation and, and, you know, for us to stop othering nature, to, under- to get people to understand we are nature, we're part of nature. And um, there's been a huge resistance to that from the commissioners. Um, um, it was always tagged on the last episode that America would never buy. Um, and and now um, we're seeing a change, things like Seaspiracy, things, you know, uh, um, films that actually have the hard line, which are, you know, it's depressing, it's not great news. and not all of it is you know you need to take everything with salt and do your own education I think that's incredibly important you know don't believe everything you're shown but um I think it's it's really I'm, I'm losing my thread but what I want to say is it's so important what we do that's why we do it we do it because we love nature because we're part of nature um but what's great is things are changing up until now there's been uh, possibility that we've all been slightly guilty of chocolate boxing nature, making it look beautiful um, and pretending that it's pristine, which it certainly isn't. It's, um, it's um, uh, you know, as, as all of us will testify, it's far from it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned this concept of chocolate boxing nature and uh, the author, George Monbiot, has been quite critical of some of the documentaries out there like Blue Planet, which he says promotes something that he calls micro consumerist bollocks. So the idea of using, you know, giving up plastic straws and cotton buds instead of presenting the real culprits of destruction like the plastics industry. Would you agree with his assessment? Well, I think he's got a huge, I mean, he and I are very
0: lucky because we have the luxury of um being in a position where we've got you know, we can choose what we eat um and how to get around it, you know, um, a rounded nutritious diet. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think that the, you know, the the cost of recycling should be part of the, you know, um, the cost of plastic itself. It should be taken on by the manufacturers. There should be punitive charges for them. Um, but um, you know, I believe absolutely when he says that we should treat food. Um, fishes, um, not but food, but as wildlife, I completely concur. I will also put my hand up and say that I do eat a very small amount of fish. I buy it from a local fishmonger. I eat it very, very rarely. I don't eat meat or f- um fowl at all, and I don't eat bottom feeders, but I, you know, I do eat a bit of fish, but I have the luxury of supplementing my diet. Many people. Um, don't have that luxury so yeah let's end industrialized fishing that would be great or at least pause it until the world recovers and end plastics you know get the plastics um, not end them but get the people making them to bear the cost of what they're doing to the planet
1: Karen do you agree with Sophie that the, that the solution is to end industrialized fishing and um,
4: yes I do absolutely I think uh, if you're looking uh, I mean, I'm like Sophie, I do eat fish. I also collect my own shellfish. I know where it comes from. I know I'm not overpicking. Um, I think we have an enormous social heritage in our inshore fishermen. The knowledge, when I work with estuarine fishermen, like in the Waterford Estuary, their local knowledge is second to none. We absolutely have to have that in the adaptation to climate change. And their knowledge and their keen, keen eye. And by closing them down, but supporting with taxpayers' money a large-scale industrial fishing, we are absolutely got the thing wrong way around.
1: You, you know, we were talking earlier to guests about this need for marine protected areas in Ireland and the public consultation that's going on on this issue. What would Coastwatch like to see come out of that consultation?
4: Uh, I think it is, um, first of all, I don't want to knock things, but it is, isn't it ironic that for a foreshore license for major capital dredging or a major wind farm or whatever, we've got 28 days to comment. For the MPAs, we've got an unprecedented five months with no facilitation. So my view is the MPAs are way overdue We need to work now, and as an interim measure, we need to protect certain species and features now everywhere as a blanket. For example, seagrass beds and kelp forests. And that'll put a little bit of skids under where to protect what. Because if we have a blanket protection of these key habitats and mussel beds and the areas where mussel beds have been until they were erect, in the last, say, 15 years, then we would make significant progress.
1: Sophie, you mentioned Seaspiracy earlier, and last week we were speaking to a comedian here, PJ Gallagher, about his green life, and and he mentioned that documentary and said that all these documentaries on Netflix are kind of the same. They're 90% gloom and doom, and then they try and roll it back in the last 10 minutes to give you hope and give you a solution, but by then you're too depressed to deal with it. Would you say that that's a problem in trying to communicate these kind of problems through documentaries and films to the public?
0: I mean, the reason I'm a wildlife filmmaker is because, you know, I go out into the wilds and I'm inspired and in awe of what the world does and its ability to recover. So I think that we have to balance, we have to continue to inspire people. And as I said earlier, it's just great now that we're actually able to tell people about the reality of what's happening out there um, in a, in a balanced and good way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, he's absolutely bang on. It's really, really hard, but I mean, I'm, I've learned just from now, I, I had no idea that, um, that wet wipes, I mean, I know in London there is, um, which is where I live, if you go out into the Thames at high, high tide, it is a lair of wet wipes. It's like everywhere you go, it's completely, um, there was a massive article about it the other day, but this whole idea of flushable, um, is the language, isn't it? Um, um so yeah, I would I would say that he's absolutely right about um the film's being depressing, but I think that we we have to show the reality, but we also have to remind people why they're so why we're so lucky to have it and stop othering nature. I think that's what I'd like to do. Um, you know. Um, Uh, just remember that we're part of it.
1: Yeah, that connection to nature is really the key. And, you know, I think Karen Coastwatch has promoted a lot of citizen science initiatives to to get people to connect to nature over the years. And it's a great way to help individuals get involved in in helping to solve environmental problems by gathering data and informing scientific research. So with Biodiversity Week coming up in May, what have you guys got planned regarding citizen science efforts? Um, Well, we're hoping to... Uh, map more of those key habitats
4: which we would like to see protected everywhere because if you don't know where it is then you you might map it obviously uh, so we're calling on people to uh, get the exact areas of seagrass or sometimes known as eelgrass Zostra naughty is the little baby one which looks quite inconspicuous we will have some information on our website and then Zostra marina the one which fishermen and those out in boats are more likely to find. Uh, That's one, I mean, also working on on kelp beds and working on many other things. So we'll roll it out over the weekend, but as we are uh, on radio, just one thing which is wonderful for families to do, or for, for anybody to do, go out at dusk or dawn, instead of the, or additionally to your bird chorus, Listen to the chorus of nature in the intertidal as the tide is just going out and the winkles all go kick, click, that, click, that. and the limpets go crawling back to the area where they live. It is a magic sound. It's just very, very quiet. You have to listen for about five minutes to get your ear in.
1: That sounds like something I'm going to need to do tomorrow morning. And people can go to coastwatch.org to find out more about the kind of citizens of science initiatives that you have going on and, and how they can get involved. My thanks to Sophie Darlington and Karen Dubsky for their work in nature conservation. I'm joined now on Down to Earth by the Minister of State for Heritage and Reform for the Government of Ireland, Minister Malcolm Noonan, who joins me today to discuss the government's new efforts in marine protection. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you. It's great to be here, Cara. Thanks for coming on. We've been discussing the problems with our marine environment on this week's show. So, from your perspective, how does Ireland fare in both the extent of the problems in our marine environment and, more importantly, I think, how we're responding to those problems?
5: Well, I suppose in, in uh, European terms, we probably don't fare too great. We have a, a current marine protected area network of about 10,500 square kilometres, about 2.1% of our total maritime area of about 490,000 square kilometers so if you look at Ireland's maritime area it's seven times the, the size of our landmass. so if, if we look include the seabed uh, Ireland is one of the largest sea countries but we have a very low level of protection so we're, we're setting about to set uh, to put in place a, a coherent network of marine protected areas and these are geographically defined maritime areas within uh, certain protections for conservation purposes so that's Uh, our big plan, and um, it's set out in the program for government um, to move towards a 10% MPA coverage uh, under the Marine Strategy Framework Directive as soon as we can, and to move towards 30% of marine protected areas by 2030. It's a big ambition, um, but we're in the public consultation phase of that now, and it's really quite exciting to be part of it.
1: I think it will come as a surprise to people when they find out that we're only protecting 2% of our waters. And, you know, you said you have this new commitment in the programme for government to go to 30% by 2030. But the previous government had a commitment of protecting 10% of our sea by 2020, which obviously didn't happen. So how can you ensure that this government isn't just paying lip service with yet another target that won't be achieved?
5: Well, a number of key components are falling into place right now. The the marine spatial plan, the national marine planning framework, uh, and the maritime area planning bill they're complementary to this process. Uh, I think what, what I, I find in this government is that there's a, a general thrust among all of the government partners to move towards this. We know that we are in the, in the depths of a biodiversity emergency. We have we would have a new national biodiversity action plan uh, moving forward uh, from later this year. So, I, I think there's a a a demand not just within government but a demand from communities and and something we're finding within the public consultation process is communities coastal communities are contacting us and saying we'd love to be part of this we want to be part of it we're talking about you know heritage uh, MPAs down in Waterford Estuary uh, other types of MPAs up in Donegal so there's a really good uh, demand for it And and we think that's really encouraging I think the last year in particular has proven Uh, that our closeness to nature and a reconnection with nature has been a really um, fantastic outcome of what has been otherwise a really, really tough year for everybody.
1: You mentioned this new Biodiversity Action Plan. This is the fourth Biodiversity Action Plan that the government has put forward. I can't recall anything really changing in Action Plans 1 through 3. So is this fourth one just another plan that doesn't get implemented?
5: No, it's not. I mean, the the last Biodiversity Action Plan, we met with the Biodiversity Forum a number of weeks ago, they gave a pretty damning review of the last plan. And and really, everything stems back to resources. And that's really what we're trying to do, build resilience within our department to bring up staffing, boots on the ground, uh, more scientists, more ecologists. I think that's the really critical part of all of this work that uh, Ireland has, I suppose, for too long. And it's, it's. I'm not laying blame at anyone's door. I think it's really just, uh, you know, we've gone through economic crises and sometimes nature falls down the priority list. But I definitely think what's happening now is that, as I said, I think communities are now saying to us, we actually want this. We want you to act for nature. Young people have been out for Fridays for future, not just for climate, but also for biodiversity. And I think that's Really important that we respond to that. So, at a political level, uh, constituencies wanted people, uh, politicians are saying, actually, our constituents are saying to me, and that we actually want change. And I think that is giving a good background to putting in place the resources. We we, we secured a huge increase in funding for National Parks and Wildlife Service this year. Uh, We're undergoing a review process for that that now, which is really important. I think all of these things combined will hopefully start leading us towards a much more concerted, defined and committed effort over the next decade, the decade of ecosystem restoration, uh, to move towards a, a much stronger and interactive relationship with nature.
1: Last week on Down to Earth, we talked about the just transition and this new kind of restoration economy that you've referred to with new jobs and things like restoring peatlands to help them absorb more carbon and address climate change. So what kind of just transition do you envision for fishermen if we're talking about giving them less access to fishing waters by creating more of these marine protected areas?
5: Well, it, it's really important that this process, the consultation process, is, is done in collaboration with coastal communities and with, with, with fishing communities in particular. So the definitions of MPAs would, uh, would vary and uh, there are marine areas that would be managed over the long term but the, the, with the objective of conserving habitats, but that has to be done uh, in collaboration with fishing communities. And I think um, those fishing communities that we're starting to meet uh, have said to us that you know th- th- they are concerned about overfishing, they're concerned about what's happening with the, with the large uh, super trawlers, and they want to be involved in a process that looks at sustainable fishing, heritage fishing, and, and a much more local, deeper resilience where uh, fish are landed and, and, and sold in local markets, and that we have a much more interactive uh, relationship with the sea, how we use and enjoy the sea, but also how we use the resources of the sea.
1: The consultation on marine protected areas runs for about 100 more days. So what do you hope to see out of that? And, and how do you suggest that people get involved in having their say?
5: Well, they can. Uh, the uh, submissions can be put in on uh, gov.ie forward slash n consultations. You can go to our website on that. Uh, we're closing the, the statutory consultation period by the 30th of July this year. But we're also hoping to try and get out and meet with some communities um, as restrictions ease. It's been frustrating. We'd we'd love to be able to go and meet communities and talk to them. And we also would hope that uh, local authorities would play a part, local radio, local newspaper, to raise awareness of what MPAs are and what they could be. And I think it's quite a lofty, perhaps uh, wooly concept, but I think if we can get that message out there of what we're trying to achieve collectively, I think we could get a very good um, uh, response from people. And that's really what we want to do. We want this to be immersive, inclusive, and we want communities to be a part of this. If you look at the old system of land based designations for SPAs, SACs, that we you know it was adversarial. It was done, uh, it was imposed on, on, on communities. And we want to see a different approach with this. It has to be, we're absolutely certain that it has to involve communities. This is about
1: nature and people. I'm looking forward to seeing those responses. My thanks to Minister Malcolm Noonan for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth.
0: Down to Earth. On News Talk With Amundi. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all.
1: Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. Today, I'm really delighted to be joined by Riptide Movement singer and songwriter Maliki Tuhi. Maliki, i think it might come as a surprise to listeners to hear a rock star discussing his green life so just how interested in environmental issues are you
6: hey cara how are you doing uh, thanks for having us on the show uh, as a band uh, we've always been interested in uh, environmental issues but i suppose we we got really passionate about it in yeah it was around 2017 i was watching a documentary called plastic oceans uh, that was on netflix i just found it really uh, overwhelming and uh, Felt really depressed after watching it. So um I remember just sitting down at the piano and I wrote kind of two songs really quickly then. Uh, one was called Plastic Oceans and one was called What What Would the Kids Say? And uh, it kind of led on from there. Uh We felt that these songs w- would be great to kind of front a, a campaign and raise awareness around plastic pollution if that was something we could do, particularly single-use plastics. And we said to um few different uh, environmental groups and that's when we got talking to Clean Coast and we we teamed up with Clean Coast and Antasca to make the the web series that we made called Plastic Oceans. We kind of wanted to learn more about here in Ireland and kind of how single-use plastics were being used in Ireland and how it was damaging our seas and the Atlantic and, and our sea life and it kind of grew organically through that because we had a series of meetings with a clean house and and we were thinking of ideas of different ideas of, of how we could do the web series. And we kind of from the outset we said that we wanted it to be something because we, we we're by no means experts on this whatsoever. And we we just wanted to kind of learn about it. And we thought by doing a web series that uh, our fan base and followers could kind of relate to our journey and kind of come on that journey with us.
1: In your journey making those short documentaries, which are on your website, RiptideMovement.com, what was the thing you found most surprising in, in that exploration on plastic waste?
6: kind of always envisioned the plastic pollution as, um, do you know what, you'd see the kind of plastic islands out in the middle of the Pacific or the Atlantic. You kind of see it being reported on the news, like these these massive basically like they're like continents full of plastic to get caught in the in, in the in the drifts yeah it's and, on my uh, bucket
1: list to go there actually just to see it
6: yeah it's 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 uh it's incredible like because you can kind of visually see that and you can kind of i suppose you can kind of quantify it and, it and it kind of puts fear into you and you go god something has to be done so i think that's good in in, in a way of kind of of raising awareness around us but what really kind of blew my mind was the microplastics because it's, it's the plastics we don't see because throughout this web series, we we met like. With microbiologists, and one of them uh, meetings that w- we were introduced to uh, microplastics and how they work, and and just how 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 tiny they are, and they, they, you know they can be you can't see them, you can only see them through through a microscope. And to think that you know they're everywhere, doing they're all our waterways, and you know doing our seas, and I imagine them, we'd you know that, that that microplastics get into the environment and be rained back down on top of us, and even, even with our clothes and everything. It was just it just became such a um, it, it just blew my mind. So that you was, also that you were really...
1: went on a trip with Greenpeace down the Rhine, didn't you, to look at the issues of microplastics. What what was what was your findings there?
6: There's kind of through the web series, um, Greenpeace seen us and, and they invited us over. That was uh not last year, just in 2019. So we went over to uh, uh, Cologne and met Greenpeace there and then we traveled down the river Rhine for three days. With their scientists and uh, a few other activists, and we were what they were doing was was taking samples of the water every every mile down the Rhine. It was kind of to highlight like Germany in particular would be a very kind of green uh, country. It was to highlight how how polluted the River Rhine was with uh, microplastics. For us, we got to go on to the Beluga, which is a famous Greenpeace boat, and with their you know scientists all over the world, and they they had you know they had a working lab on on the on the ship. And we were we were able to see the samples that were taken out of the water and we were able to see, um, you know, how much microplastics was in the water the whole way down the line.
1: And where were those microplastics coming from?
6: Simple things like washing your clothes Mm -hmm. and the synthetic fibers that come off your clothes, you know, go down the drain and they, they end up in the rivers.
1: Yeah. Have you changed your personal behavior at all after seeing all of these things around microplastics?
6: I've tried. and like, as I say, I'm not an, I'm not an expert by any I means, not claiming to be. And I'm as guilty as the next. I'm sure all my clothes got, are, are, are made of plastic. Like a lot of our clothes have synthetic fibers in them. I go to the supermarket just like everybody else, and all our food and everything we buy is, 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 is basically, you know, we're flooded with plastic all the time. So I, I'm fully aware of that. But I do try in my own way to do what I can do and that is like i drink filtered water now so i i try not to buy bottled water um and that's actually something that we we did as a band as well like most bands would have riders and most artists have riders and sure other do know what what riders are It's usually, like you know pay to beer and and um and you know all, all the kind of all the kind of good stuff that you get in a green room
1: like only and, blue m&ms or something like that right <laughs> <laughs>
6: yeah we wouldn't be as um <laughs> I suppose pre madonnas you're not diva. As, 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 <laughs> as some other artists, but um, one of the things that we we thought we could do was uh, like we we we'd have a big enough crew with us as well, and um, we'd go through an awful lot of water. So like every venue we'd arrive, when we'd be on tour every venue we'd go to, there could be like forty eight, maybe even even double that, um, forty eight bottles to eighty bottles in our green room every gig we do, and mm. you go through gallons of water because it, the the shows are. Very energetic. You burn off a lot of energy, and, and it's it's like playing. A, I suppose it's like, it's like playing a football match. You know, you're you're you'd be you drink you go through an awful lot of water during the gig and after the gig. Well, we kind of made a condition on our rider that we didn't want plastic bottles of any kind on our rider, and obviously we would need water, so we are kind of I suppose our blue M and M's was that we that we want the jugs of water per stage. So stuff like that. Like I suppose if we'd be doing tours, so you could be doing. Now we could play anywhere, anywhere up to hundreds, hundred and fifty gigs a year. So that's
1: a lot of bottles. You now, if you're
6: taking fifty plastic bottles off off the rider every night, that's um, that's a big impact. Know, that's, yeah. That's well, it's a big impact for us for us, a small crew. And then even stuff like um, with the now, I know, I know at at, at this time, it's uh, it's a lot different because because of COVID, mm-hmm. uh, and there's a, there's an active virus out there at the moment, so it's very hard to kind of use things like uh you know bring cups and you can't really go into a coffee shop and use use your own bring cup anymore because, for obvious reasons but that that was something that uh that that, that we did as well uh, when we were on the road because um we could be on the road from it from traveling from city to city across europe or wherever we were and you know you're you're kind of you're traveling all day and it, that's a lot of stops at the garage it's a lot a lot of cups cups of coffee mm-hmm. and uh There'd be usually seven of us traveling at one time. So we might, we may stop four or five times during the day, um, you know, to fuel up and, and to get, uh, coffees and stuff. So, you know, you're talking
1: 35 30, talks. 35,
6: yeah. uh, cups a day oh so on, on a tour it works out a lot as well you know yeah over, over a year
1: travel so just is stuff tra- like that tra- you know travel is obviously a huge part of being in a band and, and we're aware of its impacts on climate change so coldplay announced in 2019 that they were no longer doing tours until travel became our touring became environmentally beneficial so how do you deal with that impact of having to travel for your work and for your gigs um
6: well as, yeah as i say you know um we're, we're, we as guilty as the next. And that's why I don't want to be kind of preaching about this. It's, it's just kind of, this is a, the whole idea that web series and, and everything that we do is just kind of, it's our journey. And us was kind of learning about, um, uh, about the environment and trying to do our best and travel is, is, it's just part and parcel of, um, <clears throat> excuse me, of, um, of the touring industry, you know, that's, that's our main industry. And, um, it's very difficult uh, you know we're we're obviously on an island, so we need to you know you can only only get off it on a ship or <laughs> on a plane and um you know that's that's going to leave a big carbon footprint. Have the
1: restrictions and, on your ability to do live gigs due to the pandemic changed your opinions on the need to travel?
6: Um, yeah, see, i I, I guess. I love travel, like I'll just be honest with you. I, I love traveling. So I guess the issue is like what you were saying with Coldplay is that um we have to try and find ways of fueling planes and and we are doing it already with cars, aren't we? With electric cars and, and, and that, you know, that's mm-hmm. in ten years' time there should be no more kind of petrol or diesel engines. So we are definitely moving in that direction. So I don't the issue I think shouldn't really be like everybody loves to travel so it's kind of finding a way to travel sustainably that's 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 where we're trying to get so
1: it. if the technology became available maybe to gig virtually as like avatars and some kind of 3d vr platform would you be up for making that switch or do you feel like live events are really essential
6: uh it, it's um like the avatar thing would be brilliant um but it can never make up for the the real thing you know it's it's uh it's It'd be amazing. I, I can see the value in it for someone that is. I, I can see the value even now during drunk COVID times. You know, like a lot of artists are playing. Um, you know, Facebook live gigs and stuff, and it's it, and it's it's great for for the artists and 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 for for everybody for the punter. You know, you you can tune in from your sitting room and, and watch a gig, but it's and, and you can you know you can kind of chat uh, on the comment section with 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 other people that follow. the artists or the band so it's like a community Mm -hmm. so it's just definitely a place for it it's definitely a value for us but in terms of the real thing it doesn't come anywhere close to us so
1: (laughs) so um, you're still gonna gig when everything opens up my only experience of festivals has been in ireland where my heart is usually broken at the waste left behind at events like electric picnic so what's been your experience of festivals around the world are there are there any that are actually sustainable yet
6: um so they're not fully sustainable, but they're, they're moving that way. They're getting there. It's kind of, you know, everyone's making strides to get there. And uh, some of the festivals that we've played, like, like Glastonbury, um, it's absolutely, it's hard to get your head around the size of it. Cause it's just, it's just monstrous. It's like um, electric picnic, four or five times the size of electric picnic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it really is like a city that's, that's, that springs up for, for the festival and, um, but they, they you know they i I thought they were doing lots of stuff that was really sustainable and and you know having incentives with the which are which are drinking glass in your cup that you just bring it back and and you reuse it for the whole time you're there and then and then you know um there's another festival Comedy festival which I thought was great that um we were kind of leaving on the last day, but everybody had it was kind of part of parcel of attending the festival that you had to bring everything with you so you kind of kind of like the burning man I suppose in 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 America you kind of you leave it as you as as you found it
1: yeah how do they deal with the tents because there seems to be a culture here of just everybody leaving their tents behind
6: well I think it's just part and parcel of they kind of make it like a like a point that if you're coming to the festival that you have to bring your, your stuff back with you so Imagine, you know, if other festivals make it a real, you know, then that's the real, you have to bring it back with you.
1: And for, everyone just for, does it. There's no yeah, there, enforcement. Like, like
6: if there's, know, there's a million ways of doing it, I'm just kind of thinking, but i say if there's a deposit scheme where you, everyone has to pay 50 euro or 100 euro as they're going into the festival and you get it back once you have your tent under your arm and all your stuff with you on the way out.
1: Yeah, I have 100 percent lobbied for that to no avail with Electric Picnic. But I think your experience resonates so much with several of our other guests on Down to Earth this season and hopefully with our listeners, too, because you've you've tried to implement little changes in your life and your work in order to help solve a big global problem that can otherwise seem really depressing. So Maliki Tui of Riptide Movement, thank you so much for sharing your green life with us on Down to Earth.
6: Yeah, thanks for having us on, Cara. Much appreciated and best of luck with the show.
1: And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening and thanks, as always, to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget you can subscribe to the series on podcasts at newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. The last 12 weeks have been an absolute pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've loved making it. Playing us out of this series is Riptide Movements, What Will the Kids Say? Stay curious.